We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The NBA is back. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history? Still in the making. The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is managing editor Derek Ciapala, and today we're sitting down with the author of Hollywood's Teen, Grit, Glamour, and the 1950s Los Angeles Rams, Jim Hawk. Jim, how are you today? Good, Derek. Thanks for having me on. Well, awesome. We are glad to have you. Um, your book is interesting, especially from the perspective that you took with it. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of researching this book? Sure. Um, again, thanks for having me. Um, so my dad was a professional football player for both the Rams and the Cardinals uh, in the 1950s. So I grew up around pro football, uh, obviously a huge Rams fan. Um, both my parents are from uh, the L.A. area. In fact, just uh, you know, within walking distance to Coliseum is where they both grew up. Both went to high school in the L.A. area right there. And um, in 2000, my dad, unfortunately, had passed away from, from lung cancer, um, and at his memorial service that we have for him in the L.A. area, uh, a number of his old teammates came, um, you know, people like uh, Les Richter and, and others, and Dwayne Putnam and Harry Thompson, and et cetera. And after the, the services, and we're Irish, so we were having a, a little celebration of my dad's life um, with some beers with these guys and my, my two brothers. I'm the youngest in my family. Um, they, they were just telling old stories about what it was like to play in the 50s, the friendships, the um, you know, just what it was like to not make a lot of money at that time. And, and the league was, you know, only in 12 cities. And I was just fascinated with what it was like. And so 
my brother tapped me on the shoulder during, you know, the conversation and said, hey, you know, I'm not a writer. You are. You should write these stories up. So I started kind of talking to these folks offline and, you know, having conversations. Partly it was to deal with, you know, the death of a parent, which, uh, you know, inevitably all of us go through at some point in our lives. And, you know, my dad was a uh, was a fantastic guy and a, and a great friend and, and mentor of mine as well, and we were super close. And so it was a way for me to kind of get to know him a little bit better, kind of put some more detail on the stories that I had heard growing up. And so I started a process of interviewing all these guys, and then I expanded my interview set to others to include people like Frank Gifford and Sam Huff and, and Andy Robustelli and a number of the, these guys obviously have passed away since then. But So that process started in about 2002, and it took me quite a while, to be honest with you. I started a company in the mid, uh, you know, uh, 2000s, um, 2003, 2004 timeframe. So I kind of put the book project on the shelf, and then I came back to it and put it back. And, and I really wanted to tell the story of the Rams in the 1950s and, you know, through the eyes of my dad. So finished the book around 2013. Again, only wrote it really for my family and my brothers and sisters and my mom and, and my sons too. I have two boys and, and my oldest is named John after my dad. And so, you know, that was the motivation for the book. And then I had a friend in the book business who said, you know, he read it and he said, this is pretty good. You should publish it, especially given the Rams are coming back to Los Angeles. And there are, you know, a lot of folks like you, Jim, who are really big fans who I think would enjoy reading this. So we kind of pushed through and, and found a publisher in Los Angeles. And uh, I was working in the Obama administration at the time and obviously very busy and very distracted. So I couldn't, unfortunately, get the book published at the beginning of the season last year, but it came out at the end of last year in December. So it really was a labor of love to kind of tell stories about the team. Uh, hopefully Rams fans can connect with it in a really proud franchise and a long history and a great history uh, in L.A. and a team that was incredibly innovative, everything from the first NFL team to integrate to the first team moving west of the Mississippi River, the first team to reach a million fans, the first team with a television contract, the first team to have a logo on their helmets. You know, in many ways, they were the first real modern pro franchise, you know, as the 50s was uh, when the NFL started to kind of put itself on the map in the country and in, in the eyes of fans. Now, you present this story more through the eyes of your dad and, and it kind of circles, you know, the story circles around him and branches out into Hollywood. You know, what was the, the mental process for you to make sure you told your dad's story, but also told the story of this being Hollywood's team? That's a great question. So, uh, and it's kind of fundamental to the book. So, you know, I believe sincerely that in any organization, in any city, any government, there's people that just do their day-in-day jobs that don't get a lot of glamour, who make things run, whether that's a football team that, you know, an offensive lineman like my dad, who is a super quiet, humble guy who just did his job, the quote-unquote lunch pail guy, if you will. But, you know, that's also in companies, in cities, in, you know, even Hollywood itself, in the movie business. There's folks, you know, behind the cameras and holding the lights and doing all the, the, the nitty-gritty production work that <clears throat> may get a byline at the end of the, the movie, but you don't see them. But it takes a heck of a lot of people kind of toiling in the shadows to make things run and make things work. And so, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting to kind of use that mechanism and, if you will, to kind of have my dad be the protagonist and his story. And the book starts off with him being coming back from Korea, uh, you know, traded to the Los Angeles Rams, his hometown team and the excitement there. And, you know, basically walking into the Coliseum and, and for the first time as a, as a professional football player, as a young guy. And really, you know, then kind of, you know, my dad kind of, 
through his life and, and my mom's life as well, because it's a, a part, partly her story too, of two young kids, if you will, who um, get married and you know live a professional football player's life, which back then was not as glamorous in terms of the dollars, but it was glamorous in terms of uh, you know the exposure to you know really interesting people and obviously incredibly talented uh, athletes, etc. So that's the that was the again the genesis of kind of the and the, the structure of the book that I I put together. Now without giving you know too much away, can we, we obviously want people to read the book. What are you know what some examples of some of the the good threads you know of stories that you're able to tell? Yeah, I think there's a, a few different stories, Derek. You know, like I said, the the Rams were comprised of you know big stars and everyday workhorses like my dad. But also, you know, they were you know there's a there's a chapter on kind of the integration of you know, professional football, and the year before Jackie Robinson, the Dodgers, the Rams had integrated. You know, this was a different time. So even though Los Angeles is a pretty progressive place, there still was a lot of racism. But, you know, remember also that the NFL in the 1950s didn't have a team in the South. There was no Dallas Cowboys. There was no Atlanta Falcons. The most Southern team was the Washington Redskins, uh, believe it or not. And they had a radio network throughout the South, and they were the last team to integrate because their owner at the time was worried about if they had a black player, you know, what would that do to their fan base? So, you know, another story that I tell is kind of the story of Pete Rozelle, and he was their the Rams PR guy in the 1950s who became the general manager, who just a few short years later in 1960 became uh, the commissioner of the NFL. Um, and, you know, at the right pulse age of 33, the boy commissioner, if you will. But his, you know, his dynamism, his kind of marketing genius in the 50s was evident in a lot of ways. So I tell that story. I tell stories of players like Les Richter, like Dwayne Putnam, you know, Andy Robostelli, folks like that. I also was fascinated to just hearing growing up about, you know, my dad is a professional athlete. Um, he was an offensive guard. You know, back then he was 6'2", 240, 45, about today probably you know, maybe a fullback size. But he was a guy who really had to work out quite a bit. And, you know, he, he lifted weights, but it was a time where it was looked down upon, if you will, by coaches because they thought lifting weights would make you stiff and not limber and not quick. And so my dad was <laughs> – uh, for lack of a better term, sneak his workout, his weight workouts in by going in his garage and doing the Charles Atlas workout, which was big at the time, and closing the garage door. And he just said it made him feel good and, and stronger and more powerful. And, and there were a couple guys like that. And so, you know, Dwayne Putnam, who was my dad's best friend on the team, longtime pro bowler, all pro offensive guard, said the same kind of stories. They would hide it. Um, can you imagine today that type of thing? So, you know, other things, you know, Bob Hope was one of the owners, the famous comedian. I also wanted to share with Rams fans just the fact that, you know, the Rams, you know, were an iconic franchise and are an iconic franchise in a city, the first team to move west, as I said earlier. But, you know, regularly the, the crowd at the Coliseum, it was packed. And typically they were breaking all kinds of crowd records and there were people sitting in the in the rows, if you will, Hollywood types showing up at the games it was a it was a place to be seen, you know, much like the Lakers. You know, they were Showtime before Showtime. You know, the Lakers, the old famous Lakers term that started in the 80s with Magic and Kareem. Um, so those are, you know, there were, there were a number of stories like that. There's another chapter that I wrote about the the Dodgers moving to LA because I, I thought I, uh, telling the story of these was not, uh, you know, w wouldn't be appropriate without also telling the story about how the Dodgers moved west. And there's a, a woman that I profile who was. City, city councilwoman who happens to be a, a friend and mentor of mine named Roz Wyman, who, you know, in her early 20s was able to 
be a part of the team that, that convinced Walter O'Malley to move the iconic Brooklyn Dodgers to Los Angeles to move uh, to move west. So it's just seeded with a number of stories like that and vignettes about what it was like to be not only in the 1950s, but in Los Angeles in the 1950s. I tried to make you feel like you were back at the time uh, in L.A. You took a significant amount of time in the book to cover the Dodgers. Uh, what were some of the parallels that you were trying to draw between the two sides, between the Dodgers and the Rams and the movement of the franchises to the West? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you nailed it. It's the parallel of the movement of the franchise, right? It is, is There's an underlying story that the United States was, was growing up, if you will, in the 1950s. We were just post-war, World II, and lots of people, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were moving West for more opportunity. You know, my dad's family, for example, had moved before the war, but that was due to the Depression, and they were, my grandfather worked in a U.S. steel plant in, in Pittsburgh and lost his job during the Depression, so they moved West for a brighter future. And, you know, my dad was about eight or nine years old and told the story about, you know, his dad saying, I'm going to California, I'll see you in a month or so. You know, your grandmother and your uncle are going to bring you out in a few weeks. And my dad was like, California, what's that? You know, so, you know, tell that story times thousands. thousands. Um, so there were lots of people migrating to the West for more opportunities. Obviously, it's a beautiful place and a beautiful climate. But with that um, migration of people, there also was a migration of opportunity, an economic opportunity. So the Rams and, and their owner at the time, Dan Reeves, saw that opportunity when he moved the team from Cleveland to Los Angeles and the O'Malley saw the same opportunity moving the Dodgers to Los Angeles. So I thought it was, you know, it's just a few years apart, really, when you look at it when between the Dodgers and the Rams moving west, and they were kind of the first two big teams to do that. And so I, I felt like it was worthy of a chapter to kind of tell that story because underlying in that is the growth of L.A. and the explosion of population and impact you know, to really become the the second city, if you will, uh, in the United States, but also a, a really important city, first-tier city in terms of, you know, culture with Hollywood and others. So. Now, one thing also you did that I, I found incredibly interesting, you mentioned this This is your dad's story as well as the story of L.A. And when, when that, with that comes a tremendous amount of personal investment. But the way you wrote many of the people, the way you described them is also very personal, even down to Dan Reeves, the owner Examining each person that you that you'd spent time with and and wrote about, what was the research process? What what were the things that you kind of weighed in order to make sure that you described them accurately? Yeah, that's a really important question. Uh, I mean, first, you know, we did a lot of research, and I had a, a collaborator that I worked on the book, uh, Michael Downs, who's a, just a tremendous guy, and and I'm a collaborator by nature, so it was a, a 50-50 proposition, and, and we really sat down at the beginning and talked about structure and also did a, a heck of a lot of research, you know, from going to California to going to the Hall of Fame. Um, <laughs> I did a, a trip with my best friend, for example, uh, to the Hall of Fame, and we spent hours upon hours uh, looking at archives and, you know, pulling out media guides, for example, which, you know, back then they used to have these really interesting stories um, about players and profiles, and it was written in a very 1950s, um, you know, fun style. So we tried to pull out some of those stories, but, you know, it was everything from talking to individuals, and we talked to, you know, dozens upon dozens of former players and family members, et cetera, but also doing the research and the diligent research and what I've learned professionally is really research, you know, is fundamental. And so finding those interesting stories behind the stories you know, one one I found that, that um, is, is glanced at the book, but you know, it was there wasn't as many rules in the NFL at the time, and the Rams were a really high flying, high scoring team, and the Green Bay Packers at the time, you know, it was before their heyday in the '60s, so they they weren't doing that well, and the Packers coaches and and, and leadership decided to 
you know, come out to L.A. and kind of, you know, use a yellow in their uniform that was very close to the Rams uniform, trying to confuse, you know, Ram defenders and offenders of who is who. So, you know, just stuff like that, little vignettes that we found, it's just kind of golden nuggets, if you will, to find, uh, you know, interesting anecdotes about people and, and other aspects of, of what the city was like as well. So, you know, everything from, you know, one of the Rams players at the time, Ron Miller, was married to Diane Disney. So there's a kind of a small story in the book about the growth of Disneyland and how there was a marketing agreement with the Rams to kind of promote it. But it was, you know, Disneyland was, uh, they spent $17 million to build it and it, you know, on 160 acres there in Anaheim and it went up in about a year. Can you imagine that today? But the Rams were, were given, you know, subsidized tickets, sometimes free tickets to go with their families and then they would market it. Um, but um, that was a family business at the time, the, you know, the Disney company. And uh, Ron Miller was a friend of my dad's who eventually became an executive with the Disney Corporation and was the first producer of Tron, the first Tron. But there's just a lot of vignettes uh, in the book like that. And I just I think those stories and the stories about people fundamentally and who they are and the types of people we talked to, I thought was uh, was really fun for me, you know, to, to kind of get to the, the background research. Now, one of the interesting stories that I read in the book was the friendship with Dwayne Putnam. Uh, were those two able to keep keep touch? Um, yeah, they stayed best friends throughout their entire life. Putter, as uh, as my dad called him. My mom became uh, really good friends with his wife as well, and our families were friends. And he moved around quite a bit because he, unlike my dad, my dad um, decided not he had an offer to be a, a, an assistant coach with the Los Angeles Chargers their first year in 1960 when they were in L.A. I, ironically enough, um, my dad decided not to do that and went into um, a professional business life after he was te- kind of bouncing around teaching high school. So my dad had a, a professional career in a, a national, international transportation company, um, became an executive there. But Dwayne Putnam became an assistant coach and, you know, kind of bounced around everywhere from the Eagles, you know, beyond. And so we would uh, would see him, you know, a number of times a year. My dad would go see him. We'd go, he'd pull us in the locker room. And I remember as a kid, you know, uh, meeting a lot of players through my dad's friends who were, you know, coaching in the league. But, you know, Putter was, uh, you know, the person he was most close to throughout his life. And unfortunately, he just passed away last year. Just a fantastic guy. Sounds like your timing was excellent in terms of getting everybody before they started to go. Uh, yeah, when you take a long time to write a book, which I did, it took 12, 12 plus years or you know eleven years to finish it because um, I kept putting it away on the shelf, and it was it was really a hobby. And again, as I, I said, it was a way to not only tell the the story of the team, which was a lot of fun, but also you know to tell the story of my dad and my mom and, and the, the the city. Well, is there anything you would you wish you would have done differently with the book? Uh, you know, I had never really thought about that. I mean, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of things we cut out of the book that, you know, just for length purposes and, and once we, we published it in terms of uh, just other vignettes that I thought were interesting just about, like, football in the 1950s uh, that, you know, went into probably more detail. So it was probably – I'm a detail guy, so it was probably cutting detail that I thought was necessary, but, you know, in a in a publishing process. And, you know, when a person reads a book, they invest in the book and they invest in a story and you really have to be respectful of that person's time. So, you know, a book can't be more than a few hundred pages. If you make it 500 pages, it's, you know, it, people lose interest pretty quickly. So there was definitely some stuff we left on the cutting room floor, if you will. But I'm pretty proud of the way it came out and, and obviously uh, hope people like it and enjoy the story of uh, not only a team, but, a you know, a family and, at the same time, and people kind of growing up around sport. Well, what was 
you know, for you, that story, you just mentioned all the things that are on the cutting room floor and, all, you know, the labor of love. What was the most important part of this book in terms of your dad that you took with you? I, I think just, you know, for me, it was the connection to talk to some of his old buddies. And that was, for me, a really powerful experience. It was, you know, again, we all have parents, we all have family, and that's the, the fundamental kind of block of everyone's lives. And, and for me, it was a, it was a way to get through you know, the grief process to kind of dig in and, and tell his story, but also tell my mom's story. And they met, you know, um, when my dad was on the Rams and, you know, my mom was this little petite woman and walked right up to this big NFL football player and asked him to dance at a St. Patrick's Day dance. You know, the families had known each other, but uh, I thought that was a cute story. And, and there's some pictures in the book of my parents' wedding because it was it was a simple backyard wedding with a bunch of professional athletes. You know, today it would be a little bit different in, you know, the back of my grandparents' home and, and right near the Coliseum near 52nd and Western. But uh, it, uh, again, it was, you know, telling the story of my dad, but also my dad is the protagonist in the book that it's a, a bigger story about a team and, and a team that I don't think enough people in the city of L.A. know the history of and wanted to share that history with uh, with people. So let's talk a little bit about the Rams now. I understand that you are a fan of the team, even to this day. Even where, you, you were even an intern at one point for the Rams. That right? Yeah, I, I interned uh, when I was in college. I thought I was going to go into professional sports, and I, I, I made a career change before, you know, after I graduated. But uh, really loved the team, and uh, I, I chose a profession where I would make less money, politics and policy. But uh, you know, just a huge sports fan, huge Rams fan. Grew up, and and like a lot of people, I was I had a really hard time with it when they moved to St. Louis, even though we had you know remained fans. It was just a little bit different, and you know, I love the line where people say it's a restoration, not a relocation, because I don't like when teams, you know, relocate fundamentally. But in this case, it just it it it, it does feel like just that. It feels like a relocation. You know, I, I live in Virginia currently. I've been in California, lived in California a long time. But we have season tickets to the Rams. My my wife thinks I'm crazy, but we get back there, and my kids are into it. And it was fun to go to a number of games last year, including the first game at the Coliseum when they played the Cowboys in the preseason. You know, it was just an electric atmosphere. So it's a great city and a great sports town. And, you know, the Rams, um, I, I think, are in the right trajectory. They have a good young coach who's dynamic. We watched him here in, in Washington as the offensive coordinator of the Redskins. But uh, And then they have some good young talent. So it's, it's fun to follow them. I hope they have a better year this year than they did last year, obviously. But uh, I think they're on the upswing. Now, given your knowledge of, of Los Angeles, you know, did the Rams really kind of mess up? Well, let me rephrase the question. Did, did, did the Rams do anything to hurt their standing in the city by going 4-12 and last year? I think it was a, obviously a missed opportunity. I mean, when they they started off 3-1, and one, there was an excitement and electricity. I think to make it in L.A., you have to be exciting. and You have to draw people's attention. It's a, it's a place that has a lot of professional sports franchises. So I think the Lakers have gotten this right. I think the Dodgers have gotten this right. And the Rams used to get, you know, when they were there before I think they moved to Anaheim, which is the second part of your question, which I'll get to in a second. But I think, you know, just being a part of the city and, you know, I think they should focus on offense and, and scoring. I think they're going to have a really good defense this year. But, you know, people in L.A. like to see excitement and like to see winners. And, and I think, you know, really striving to win and making sure that ownership, everyone from the owner on down, that is their number one priority to win a Super Bowl every year. Fans will get that and respect that. And I think a good model is um, Dr. Jerry Buss, who 
uh, you know, Houston on the Lakers. It was, you know, the way the Lakers played ball and, and also executed, you know, off the court in terms of uh, really focusing on winning as number one. And so as long as that is, you know, clear to people and it's aggressive and dynamic, I think that'll be, be important for how they're uh, received over the next few years. Um, obviously, they'll move to a new stadium in a few years. You know, the Coliseum is iconic, and I love it, but uh, the new stadium is going to be – sounds like it's going to be amazing as well. The second part of your question, though, Derek, is kind of what they did. And, and in my view, I think they missed a huge opportunity when they – they moved to, to Anaheim, and I'm not sure if most folks know this, but there was a long-time running dispute with the Coliseum in the city to upgrade the, the Coliseum when the, the owner was Carol Rosenblum, who was the deceased uh, husband of um, former owner Georgia Frontier, and he, um, you know, made the choice to move to Anaheim. It was a newer stadium. It was a baseball stadium. It was a trend, but Anaheim is quite a drive away from kind of downtown area of LA. And I'll just give you a quick example. I have an aunt and uncle who lived in the San Fernando Valley and Encino, huge Rams fans, and they kept their Rams season tickets their first few years of an- uh, during Anaheim. But it, that. That drive on a Sunday in traffic could take two-plus hours each way to get to Anaheim from the Valley, and, and half the Rams fan base came for the San Fernando Valley. So not having a team in the city, in a Southland, in a basin that is huge, I think over time really affected the, the crowd sizes in Anaheim. And, and also at the same time, I think the marketing of the team was, was not as sophisticated or as good as it could be. Uh, and I saw that up close when I was interning at a young age. I, I, I in the PR and marketing business for my entire career and just noticed some things that were layups, if you will, that were just missed by by the ownership at the time. You might be being kind there. You're trying to say it was pretty horrid? Uh, it was pretty horrid. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, you know, people want to see, fans want to see their ownership invested in the team and invested in the community. And it was clear that, you know, Georgia Frontier wasn't that, with all due respect. She just didn't, it seemed like there was more focus on dollars and, you know, kind of making sure budgets were, were uh we're done rather than kind of investing in the team and the community and marketing of the team and the community and, you know, kind of playing off the dynamism that is L.A. Now, you know, the team is back. You know, they are very entrenched in the community already in terms of getting involved in things. And those are some of the things I would say are, are the things they've done right. Now, you mentioned folks on offense and Sean McVay. Uh, when, like you mentioned, he, you saw him out there in Washington. What's your initial thought about him and what kind of effect will he have on this team long term? I think he's lightning in a bottle, Coach McVay. I think he's obviously young. He's dynamic. He was super creative with the Redskins, kind of developing Kirk Cousins as a as a quarterback, and I think that was one of the, the things the Rams saw in him. But also the the way he moves players around on offense is really creative. The use of the tight end, you know, running back by committee, but really kind of creating an atmosphere where it's balanced and whether that's, you know, if, if – Defenses are going to stack the run. You know he's going to throw. They're going to you know, you know, put more folks in the secondary. He's going to run. And and and, and again, really using that tight end as a safety valve was really creative. And I think you're going to see some big things out of Rams tight ends. I was excited about. That. I was one of the few people probably that was excited about their you know Gerald Everett, their tight end. You know that athletic kind of basketball type tight end um, that I think fits well in a in a McVay offense. But I really do think he's going to be a really good coach. I think it was also it showed a tremendous amount of ability and confidence for him to hire Wade Phillips, who I think if you look at his track record of getting to a team and then where the team you know, ends up at the end of the season on defense in terms of the rankings, it's top 10 every year that he goes to a new team. And I think the Rams have a good, solid core defense. They had a solid defense last year, but 
I'm partial to the three forward. I think uh, they're going to surprise people with how dynamic the defense is going to be as well. So I think I think it's really going to be a fun team to watch. It's going to be fun to watch Jared Goff um, mature and grow. And, you know, he's a talent, and it's a tough situation to come in as the number one pick and, you know, having so many uh, draft picks, you know, given up for you in a place that is a high-pressure place when you're first back in the city. But I also felt last year – they didn't have the right coaches around them. You know, Jeff Fisher's a good coach, but they had a lot of young, uh, inexperienced offensive coaches. And when you when you have to develop a quarterback, you have to develop an infrastructure around him. And I feel like McVay has also done a great job with creating the infrastructure of coaches around him that have had experience developing quarterbacks and working with quarterbacks. And you know, everything from the the offense coordinator who's you know in Atlanta to the offensive line coach. Um, so I think it's just a good crew. He's built a good team, and so. It's a solid foundation for growth, and there's an excitement. You know, he's a John McVay is a Sean McVay is an excitable guy, and it uh, sounds like, and I've listened to him speak, a charismatic guy for such a person of a young age. All right, one last question, and we'll let you go. Weigh in on weigh on the debate. All right, it's a very important debate here. Uniform colors. <laughs> Which ones do you want? Do you want the white and blue? Do you want the the, the blue and yellow? Do you want the St. Louis colors? Which ones do you prefer? Okay, I'm going to start with the negative. Get rid of any remnants of the St. Louis colors. So the St. Louis gold, get rid of. Uh, I'm an old school guy, so I love the blue and yellow. Um, you know, the traditional blue and yellow, which was, you know, started in the the you know 40s and 50s and and again remember the Rams are the first with a the logo on their their helmets and so never mess with that logo either and so I'm a blue and yellow guy the the blue and white is fine but I'm a blue and yellow guy and it's just I think it's just magical colors and you see it in the Coliseum and the sun shining and there's nothing better hey, you know and I I happen to agree with you the uh, I think the Rams are missing an opportunity. I think there's a thing known as the legacy uniform, like the Green Bay Packers uniforms, the Steelers uniforms, things you don't want to mess with now. And I think the Rams had that uniform with the blue and gold. Absolutely uh, agree. And so, well, Jim, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, for those of you who are listening, his book is Hollywood Team, Grit, Glamour, in the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. It's available in Barnes & Noble bookstores, other bookstores, as well as on Amazon. Cover price twenty four ninety five. I'm sure you can also get it on ebook. Is that correct? Uh, yes, you can get it on ebook, and then uh, we're negotiating right now for the audio book too. So it'll come out again in an audio version soon. So uh, thanks for uh, for having me, and I, I, uh, I hope folks enjoy it as they read it. Well, I can. T- I, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the the perspective of it. But as soon as I, especially since when I finally understood it was about both your dad and about the fifties. At first, I was expecting it to be a straight. 50s book, and then as I got to understand that it was about your dad as well, it was a, it became a really a, a different kind of history book in a lot of ways. Um, readers, those of you who, who love learning about this team, who are history nuts like we are at Rams Talk, this is a great read for you. I definitely recommend it. Again, Jim, thanks for coming on with us, talking about your book, talking about the Rams and, and your history, and we hope you know to, to hear from you soon. I have to ask one more question with that in mind. Do you have any other writing projects on the horizon for you for the Rams? I don't have another book, but, um, you know, I'm always uh, interested in writing about the Rams and talking about the Rams. But uh, this book took me quite a long time. It was a labor of love, as I said. So um, I hope folks enjoy it. But no no, uh, no other books uh, planned at this time. All right. Had to ask. Okay. That's it for Rams Talk Ready today. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. 
can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.